Before you ask, yes, this is supposed to be ironic. <laughs> I actually have a bit of a rule. I don't like to reuse backgrounds from one thing to the next, so like anytime I use a background, I slot it into the used folder, and once I'm it's empty, then I'll pull everything back out and start everything again. Uh, this is literally the only background I have left for all the ruminations I've done for this year, so... Um, yeah, I think it fits, you know, when you're in a city that's so filled with negative tea <clears throat> to the point where everything is horrific and nightmarish in, in levels that's hard to even explain. I mean, this is what you think of, right? Nice, peaceful, sunny, it's green, the sky is blue. I mean, wouldn't you think of that if you lived there? <laughs> One of the first things I noticed about playing this game was that the graphics looked noticeably better and the music was noticeably better. It was really weird. I was like, huh, that's strange. I wonder why. Then I looked into it. Apparently, this is actually an updated engine. Uh, apparently, the first two games are actually available on tablet or phone or whatever. I wasn't even aware of that, to be completely honest with you. And this one is not. This is just on a higher-end machine like a PC, and therefore, they could actually stretch with it. I think it shows, and I think it added significantly to my overall enjoyment of the work. I did have a couple of issues with the gameplay of this one this time around, though. Even though I still had my Doom combo, uh, in this case it was actually two characters, Duncan and uh, Gobbit. Because Duncan, I set him down the, uh, let's call it the anti-AP <laughs> leaning as far as his specialization goes. So he was just locking down everyone that he could, preventing them from taking any real actions. And her job was ripping everyone's buffs off. Shred Armor was just an overwhelmingly useful spell. Uh, again, I didn't end up cheating this time because I didn't have any cheats, but with those two, I didn't really need any. Although I do have to admit, uh, in the interest of total honesty, I did have a little bit of walkthrough-y help. A friend of mine, before I w went into this game, said, hey, there's three things you need to do, and I'm like, okay, what are they? And he told me to get the sword from the museum. I can't remember, it was like the Emperor's sword or something like that, which was very useful. Uh, so he told me to get the sword, and he told me to do all of Duncan's quest, and all of uh, Isabel's quest. And he told me to like pick certain options when they showed up. I'm like, okay, why? And he's like, just trust me. You're only going to play through it once, so just trust me. And I'm like, okay. And that's what led to the best ending of rules lawyering around. But we'll get to that in a second. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I've commented on before is that the Shadowrun games don't really have voice acting. And it kind of works as far as a game that I'm playing solo. It makes for terrible streaming material, but it is very good for just, you know, sitting down and playing a game. It allows the people to, to have an enormous amount of text, and especially to do the, the novelization thing, narration. In other words, how do I put this? I don't think I've even commented on this before, but one of the things I do actually like is that they recognized the limitations of making a video game and worked with it. Because in a, in a fully budgeted, we have tons of time and money game, instead of the man kind of looks down a little bit and rubs his eyebrow and you can see the, the pall of nervousness start to creep into his expression, they would just show someone doing that with either motion capture or, you know, specifically rendered or somebody who's actually just physically doing real life action, something, right? But that takes money. A lot of money, actually. And, of course, tons of time as well. And time is money, friend. So I get why they wouldn't want to do that. But they still want to have cutscenes. They still want to have that nuance there. So instead, what they have is a picture with someone saying, the man reached over and blah, blah, blah. You know, the narration thing. 
and I actually like that they did that. I felt it more heavily in this game than any other one prior to this one, though. Even though they've been doing it ever since, it felt like they really leaned hard on the narration thing in order to flesh out the scenes and make you really understand the, the nuance of what was happening. It really added a lot to my overall enjoyment of the work. I also especially liked how, this could just be my impression, but there were several times where because I had certain skills or my, you know, I had spent so much karma, mostly on the social kind of things, I could recognize things. Like I would get, I felt like I would get a different narration than I otherwise would because I was, my character basically had a higher perception skill to use a relative equivalent and was picking up on things. I like that. But I, I do have a complaint and it's the voice acting. Now, the only one who gets any significance voice acting is Raymond, of course, but I really did not like Raymond's voice actor. Like, something about it just felt off. It wasn't actively bad. I have heard so, so much worse voice acting than this. But it sounded... I, I don't know. I don't know how to properly put it. It sounded like he didn't quite know how to emote, and he didn't quite know how to do anything. Like, it, I, I don't know how to properly explain it. It's, it did not sound like uh, voice acting. It sounded like a guy reading lines. And it just pulled me out of it every time it happened. And it's funny, because this is like the first time they've really done voice acting significantly. And it's like, eh. <laughs> and it kind of ties into the narration thing I mentioned earlier. One of the things I like about the story aspect is the plastic-faced man. There's something... Uh, I'm reminded of... Uh, Oh, what's that movie? Johnny Mnemonic uh, with Keanu Reeves. With the idea of literally having a computer in your brain and storing stuff in there. That's just kind of a neat idea. And I like this logical extension of it. Okay, so I am an assassin or a mercenary or whatever. And I literally have an uplink here. It's right here. And you can just fiddle with those memories and delete them and get rid of them. And he's just completely blasé about the whole thing. Of course he is. He doesn't remember anything he's done. And he's apparently completely cool with this. And as much as I hate to say it, that makes perfect sense to me. You can't tell me that there aren't parts of your own life, whether they are traumatic or embarrassing or just, ugh, or gross, that you just would like to get rid of and not have to remember anymore, right? That being said, question for you. How much do you think the absence of memories affects his personality? Because one thing I got the very strong impression of was that he was so chill, you know, so blasé, as I said earlier, because he has no memory of just about anything. Yeah, I go do stuff, I think. Hey, are the Cubs on tonight? You know, I just got that impression from his overall presentation. So Raymond, right? Raymond is interesting. He comes from wealth, and he's doing this whole big project, which I'm, I'm going to talk about in a minute, uh, to try and make things better for the people, to, to help Help the poor and all that fun stuff. Okay, that's a, that's a nice goal. It's a nice thing to reach for. And I know this is going to sound so weird, but I don't think Raymond is a good person. Hear me out. I'm not saying he's evil or a bad person. Rather, Raymond to me reminds me, and I've known people like this in real life, and very rarely does fiction pull off this exact slice of character. Raymond strikes me as someone who is neither evil nor good, but wants to be a good person, and therefore does good things with intent to be a good person, not because they are a good person. And I know that sounds like the same thing, so I'm going to try and explain this really quick a little bit better. The idea is, a good person sees someone fall over and is like, oh God, and tries to help them because 
they want to help them because it is their fervent desire to take care of this other person. A person who wants to be perceived as good will look at them and say, oh, if I do this, I'll be seen as good. I will have good cred. And I could use that, you know, right? And therefore, their motive, their, their, their mentality is different. I have often said many times, especially when it comes to analyzing fiction, that good and evil is more about intent than it is about action. And thus, I always got from him that, that very strong thought vibe of someone who, damn it, I mean, you know, what's, uh, uh, oh god, I can't think of her name. I wrote it down, I wrote it down, what's her name? Uh, I did write her name right. Josephine. Josephine is is evil like horrifically evil and i get the impression that raymond just basically didn't want to be that that this is more or less the equivalent of a rebellion thing like i, I just want to not be that so helping people is pretty much the exact opposite of what she does so i'm going to do that too now i imagine a lot of you going to disagree with me on this and that's totally fine uh, for the record i did not chose the go back to seattle ending because obviously i didn't care for raymond all that much but <laughs> Uh, speaking of Josephine, is it just me or is she incredibly stupid? Like, like I'm not even kidding. She strikes me as the Wayland yutani of this situation. And I mean that very specifically because the Wayland yutani is, isn't just stupid evil, which they are, but it's the additional layer of not only are we stupid and evil, but we're also going out of our way in order to make things worse on like a societal or existential or cultural, whatever level, some, some kind of higher thing, something that will have significant negative impacts for a large scale for a long time, because right now we'll get a little bit more money out of it or whatever, right? An ultimately short-sighted and greedy perspective that has access to unlock horrible things. The whole, ugh, I'm going to mess up so many pronunciations here, so please forgive me. The whole Kyonya thing is a great example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, we're, I'm just going to go ahead and keep this machine going. And under certain endings, from what I understand, you can just leave it going. I, I guess it's, it's if you uh, you take the 14-year deal, which, yeah, right, that's, I've, I've never understood that kind of deal. You could have a thousand years of total power and prosperity. And then you spend eternity in torment. You know, they, 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 that's not worth it. <laughs> a thousand years sure sounds like a long time. Think about how long eternity is. I'm, I'm making a Feyrune reference. Please forgive me. Point being that I look at her as someone who is so selfish and so self-absorbed and so short-sighted that she's basically the actual villain of this entire work. Which, of course, brings me to Kyonya which I'm probably pronouncing horribly, please forgive me. Uh, again, I didn't have a lot of a pronunciation guide here. I tried the best that I could. I haven't looked up C in order to say that word correctly. And I'm st I know I'm screwing it up. I, I put a pronunciation guide here, and it it's I know it doesn't sound quite right, because I, I just, I'm terrible. Please forgive me. Kyonya, the teeth person, is actually kind of interesting to me. First of all, the Yama Kings in general are fascinating. Uh, they strike me in many ways similar to a lot of mythos with regarding genies. In other words, there are rules that guideline how they function. I shouldn't even say guideline. They're, they're very strict. They can't act outside these rules. They have to abide those rules. And there's no if they don't. You know, there's no otherwise. Let me, I know this is a weird parallel, and this was posited to me by, uh, uh, extra credits recently, so I'll give credit where credit is due on this one. Um, but this this came up because I was discussing this with a friend about game rules and how most game rules are more set in stone 
than what we usually assume are rules. So here's the example. Let's say you're driving down the road and you see a stop sign. Now the rules of driving are that you stop at that stop sign, but that's not actually true. That's not a rule because you can violate that at will. That is a uh, potential consequence if you violate that stop sign, and it can cause issues either with you getting caught or you getting into a wreck or running into a person or all sorts of other things, but that's not actually a rule in the sense that it is an inviolable thing that you must follow. It is a rule that in order to keep existing as a biological living being, you have to breathe. That's a rule, right? You can't get around that. You can't bypass that, at least not with what we know now. Make sense? It's easier to discuss rules when it comes to fictional works because it can and has been argued that there are no rules in real life. I'm not going to get into that debate right now. And in a fictional sense, a writer can just say, this is true, and it is then true, and therefore a rule can be established. And of course, in a video game, we know, you know, you hit the jump button, you jump. That's a rule. You know, you can define things so uh, concretely. Thus, we get to the Yama King. Sorry for going around there a bit. I love this concept, if it's not obvious. I love the idea of beings that are ironclad bound by real rules, the kind of things that they cannot violate and are fully aware of. It was immensely satisfying to literally talk my way around and through her to the point where not only did she get nothing, you know, it, 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 most of the end, other endings, and I read up on several of them, are like, well, this happens, but, you know, Raymond sacrifices himself, or, well, we get this, but she gets her same power. You know, there's always some detriment. This is just the golden ending. No, I win. I win. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. And it was very satisfying pulling it off. I don't mind there being the concept of a golden ending, you know, the idea of a true, perfect, awesome ending in a game, as long as you have to earn it. That's always been my qualifier. It, Mass Effect 2 is probably one of my better examples of that. You really have to work at it. Well, that's actually not so true. You have to work at it. You don't have to really work at it. But you do have to work at it in order to get the best ending available out of that game. But it's so satisfying when you do. I will admit, if I had not been warned by my friend and jotted down these notes and did the things, there's a very good chance I would have not gotten that golden ending. So I think this qualifies as working for it. I don't know, that's a little bit of a debatable. But the other thing I want to talk about is the concept of uh, chi. I keep wanting to say ki, but it's actually chi. 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 God, I, I'm going to give up. QI. The concept of QI. I love the idea of there literally being a luck stat, of there being an energy force that quite literally governs fortune. It's something that I've played with a little bit in my own stories and in my own games. I actually had a, a, a ability where you can basically reduce like a roll, for example. Like, take your typical D&D &D situation. You roll the dice and you can say, okay, well you got a three, but you can go ahead and boost that, however, sometime in the near future you have to have a negative to another role in order to make up for it. A zero-sum game, if you will. I've always loved that kind of concept of literally being able to manipulate luck, uh, such as it is. Uh, probability is a little bit more accurate. Even Deep Space Nine did an episode about that. I like that concept. I love the idea of, of prosperity, of the fortune machine, of this thing that can manipulate this. And I also love the idea that it can make things so horrible. Now, 
one of the things that I have, I, I was never able to 100% concrete in this game, but I'm very strongly left with the opinion of, is that this is a zero-sum game. All of the horrible negative chi throughout the entirety of the walled city is something that is benefiting someone else, most notably Josephine, but also, you know, Kyonya, arguably. Whether that's true or not, I'm not actually 100% sure, but I love that concept. You know, you, you take from this, you have to give to something else. And so this, <laughs> it, it, it occurs to me that at the baseline, this entire, if this is true, this entire endeavor was always doomed to failure. Because even if it generated wonderful prosperity for these people, that means other people are going to have horrible detriments as a consequence. We kind of see the consequence of that because we see Josephine, who is this beloved, you know, public, wonderful person of wonderfulness, and it is emphasized over and over and over again just how bad this place is, even by Shadowrun standards, which is saying something. The walled city is just a mess. Like, in ways I actually cannot properly vocalize. So I'm just going to go back to that word, mess, and just say it one more time, mess. There we go. That's still not getting it across, but you get the idea. I love it. Um, but one of the things I, I find myself wondering is, did the Yama Kings exist before the people? Hear me out what I mean by this. There's a couple of lines here and there that made me wonder if this was an example of um, kind of like the warp, several of the warp entities over in Warhammer 40k. In other words, group belief and actions create a being, right? Rather than the being having existed to begin with. Um, I, I kind of like that idea, I admit, but I have to be honest. I don't actually know the setting of Shadowrun that well, as I mentioned uh, with last week's video, or next week's. I, I'm not sure when it's going live. I've already gone through Dragonfall at this point in time. So uh, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the setting. I don't know if that's how that works, or if the Yama Kings have always existed, and this is just them interacting with the people. At the very least, I would like to say that people aren't exactly making these any better. But in a setting where there's literally dragons and demons and spirits and insect spirits, it wouldn't surprise me too much. But I also haven't seen anything else of a similar uh, you know, implication throughout the rest of the works I've looked at. So I'm not sure. So, sorry, let's, let's rewind. So I kind of talked around most of the villains. I also I want to mention something really quick. Raymond, as I said, by my, by my impression, was not a good person. By contrast, Duncan felt very much like a good person. Someone who is a legitimately, honestly good person, who just wants to help people and do right and live his normal life and get back to it. I mean, the whole, oh, God, my sin, shit, sin chip, you know, that was horrible for him. And he is having a horrific time enduring and dealing with that, which is probably something, this technically belongs in my gameplay section, but I want to give special praise for some Something that this game does that another game I love, Dragon Age Origins, does. Even though you have a defined origin in this game, you know, you have your own backstory, it's built into the game, you can decide the exact flavor of your character a lot. And I like that. You're not simply, I'm good, I'm bad, I don't care. There's layers of nuance. Um, and the way you interact with different people and the different situations you go through allows you to decide the exact flavor of your specific character. And I like that a lot. It shines most with Duncan because you can basically generate virtually any kind of relationship you want with Duncan. Your, your foster brother, stepbrother, what do you want to think of that? Um, 
personally, I went with friendly rivalry is, is the direction I went because it seemed to fit the best. And it served as a nice contrast, I thought. He was the above ground. I was the below ground. But both of us were inherently good people. I was still trying to help. He was still trying to help. He was just doing so through the law, and I was doing so, you know, not. <laughs> Sorry. Chaotic good, basically. Um, now, I wish I had more to say about Gobbit. She was actually probably one of my favorite characters, second favorite overall. But I don't have much to say about her. I realized as I went back and looked at her that she doesn't have much characterization. She's got the food thing, and that's awesome. You guys all know how much I love my food analogies, and food as a cultural concept is something that I absolutely adore. And the idea of someone who legitimately enjoys terrible or awful things, or barely cooked things, or barely edible things, which is just a fascinating concept. And they use it very well throughout the course of the game, but I couldn't think of anything else to say about her, so moving on. My actual favorite character is Isabel. Now, I know that's going to sound weird, but hear me out. She is almost universally the worst option to pick from a gameplay perspective for any given mission. She is not as good of a decker as you can be if you set yourself up to that. She's not particularly good in a combat fight, and she actively interacts with other NPCs in a way that is a detriment to almost every mission she's in. Uh, my favorite example by far is when she's like, oh, hey, I recognize him. Hey, you know, needle, 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 right? Because she can't help herself because she's the most believable character in the, in, the, in the work for me. She is someone who is not just flawed, but is massively flawed. She strikes me as someone who is in way over her head constantly, can barely keep up, and has no idea what she's doing. And there is something endearing about that. It struck me as kind of the... And I, I know this is going to sound elitist, but I absolutely don't mean it that way. It, it felt to me like bringing her in any given situation was the role-playing choice versus bringing someone who's actually good, which would be the gameplay choice. How many of you have ever played a game which has party members, which have different dialogue in cutscenes based on which party member you bring? Like, this, this is an old, old concept. This goes back to, like, Final Fantasy VII or, you know, the, the original, like, Baldur's Gates or, or Neverwinter Nights uh, or Dragon Age or whatever you want to call it. This is an old concept. You know, I've done that. Every now and again, I'll bring such and such characters just because I want to hear what they say. That was kind of the, the position I was in with her. I used to, I, I brought her to every single mission because I just wanted, well, not every mission, that's not true, but I brought her to almost every mission just because I wanted to hear what dialogue she had, what interactions she had. Um, she struck me as someone who probably should not overall be a Shadowrunner, but at the same time, thanks to the setting, has nowhere else to be. What else can someone like that do in a world like this, especially where she lives? I don't have much to say about Rector or Gaichu. I know I'm pronouncing that one wrong, but whatever. I've, I've given my, my warning on this. I want to say a couple things about both, though. Because both have, both strike me as, you know, the, okay, here's the evil party members thing, right? Which is also an old concept. You know, do you bring, uh, Vivian or whatever her name was? Or do you bring, you know, Oh, God, I can't think of their character names. I was thinking of the, the elves in Baldur's Gate 2. There's like a good, a neutral, and an evil elf. You know, it's Viconia is the evil elf. And I can't think of the other two's names right now. Which is funny, because I never brought Viconia. Anyways, and my first thought was, oh, here's the evil party member option. Sure, whatever. But I did get a few setting thoughts about both. 
If you remember, which I'm pretty sure went live last week, in my Dragonfall thing, I co uh, commented on the idea of essence and natural versus unnatural. Rector has a lot of cyberware, way more than he should, and yet he seems to bypass the usual restrictions on essence. He claims it's because he's sociopathic, that there's some way that if more people were like him or more people simply thought in a different way, that they would be able to bypass, you know, the limitations of flesh and, you know, blah, 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 transhumanism, blah, blah, blah. I kind of agree, but not for the same reasons. Because I still firmly think, and this game reinforced this idea, and I'll admit this is probably going way off into headcanon territory, but whatever. This is something I wanted to discuss, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as always. I st this reinforces the idea that essence is more about natural. That it's not the fact that you're flesh or whatever. It's the fact that this is who and what you are. Actually, naturally, innately, corally, whatever you want to call that. And thus he is literally, naturally different. And as a consequence of being so different... He, his essence doesn't work in the same way as other people's does. He still has essence. And there are probably things that would remove his essence count and, and d devolve him into something horrible, like it does other people. But cybernetics doesn't do it because that's not unnatural to him. This also was something that Raichu, uh, excuse me, Gaichu, <laughs> not the, not the Pokemon, uh, reminded me of because his whole ghoulification thing. He is someone who, first of all, kept his sanity, which is weird enough in its own right. But his, the, the, uh, oh god, the human, transhuman, the, the, the vampirism disease, you know, the ghoulification virus, uh, is constantly burning away at his essence. Because the virus itself is such an unnatural, abhorrent thing to what he actually is, right? I mean, Red Samurai. Um, also, as an aside, I don't know much about, uh, Shadowrun, but I do know what Red Samurai are. And when I first heard about that, I was like, whoa. And then he was lower level than my main character, but whatever. Anyways, <clears throat> so his, the, the very idea of having to literally consume the flesh of others in order to replenish that essence admittedly doesn't fit with my theory. <laughs> and I'll admit that. Because at first I was like, oh, this totally lines up. You know, the, the, the disease, which is such an unnatural thing, is burning away his essence, literally ex expending the fuel, if you will. But then he restores it by eating eating flesh that's gross and un and deliberately uncooked. It has to be uncooked, otherwise it doesn't work. Now, if this is about being natural versus being biological, that doesn't line up. So, I will admit that my theory is awful and terrible. But, <laughs> but it was still interesting to see this insight into ghoulification, for lack of a better term, and the kind of lifestyle one could lead if one is a ghoul. Yeah, he's blind, but he can work with that. And yeah, he has to eat dead things, but, you know, it's we, we eat dead things just a little differently. It's cool, it's cool. The, the final thing I want to talk about is Kindly Cheng. I like her. She's one of my favorite types of villains, which is the pragmatic, smart villain. The kind of villain who doesn't just do things because they're evil, or do things because they're stupid. It's the kind of villain who does things because they benefit them. If that benefits other people too, that's fine. After all, you know, a king who rules over a prosperous kingdom is a prosperous king, right? So, or queen in this case. So I love the idea of her being this wonderfully pragmatic person. Two examples that's really shined for me, and I jotted both down here. Um, one is the party. Now, 
This is actually something that I was reminded of in another game that I've actually already covered. I don't remember when it's coming out relative to this rumination, so please forgive me. But it reminds me of a villain over in Sleeping Dogs, a villain who looked at the main character and said, yeah, that's a force of nature. I'm going to avoid that. And I always love it when a when a villain is smart enough to recognize the power and influence of the PC and act accordingly, you know, rather than trying to sit in direct opposition, trying to work with them. The whole her whole up thing with uplifting you and Duncan makes perfect sense because it benefits her given recent events and the fact that you can add to her own prestige and her whole uh, visible authority thing she's got going on. And of course, on top of that, we've also got the uh, I have no idea how to pronounce this the bow thing B A O, right? Strangler bow. He's like, aha! I will use this power to usurp her, and oh, I'm defeated. The fact that she doesn't instantly kill him, like most stereotypical villains would do, really caught my attention. It's actually probably the first time that she really caught my attention uh, in the story. And I love the idea of that. If you want to be ambitious, if you want to be you know, power-hungry or whatever, okay. I mean, no harm, no foul. You failed. And now you know that you failed because you can't beat me. However, you didn't really do so stupidly. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a second chance to keep working for me. Something about that strikes me as better than what the stereotypical opposite response would be, which is something along the lines of, You have turned on me, stab! Or, You have failed me, stab! You know, that kind of a thing. The final comment she made, though, that really stuck with me is the idea that the walled city is just another day. This really goes back to what I mentioned about Shadowrun being just a mess. Like, the whole world is just a complete and utter mess. And why the dragons... Killing the dragons was something that I was totally cool with. Because what's the point of this world? I mean, it is so messed up, right? I mean, yeah, we can try to make it better, but it's all a dirty, stingy, grungy, filthy, fly-ridden maggot pile. The fact that the walled city and the whole nightmares and the teeth and the literal negative luck, see, and, uh, see, there we go, see, and the idea of all of this nightmares, horror, and a literal extra-dimensional being trying to break into reality to affect the world and, and cause whatever kinds of torment that she can, the fact that that's just normal. Like, even in the ending epilogue, it said that, you know, people come screaming about a demon queen and blah, blah, blah. Few people hear about this news, and even fewer believe it. Because <laughs> who cares? It's just a Tuesday. Because I guess that's just Shadowrun. <laughs> so now that I'm horribly depressed... No, I'm kidding. This didn't hit me as hard as The Last of Us did, but... This was a weird note to end out this franchise on. It'll be curious if they do any more uh, Shadowrun stuff in the future. But for now... I'll see you guys next time.